Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Good morning. Hello, VJ. Good morning. Good morning. So um, our special guest is Rachel Lisa uh, Griffins. She is a multimedia artist, poet, and writer. She's recipient of numerous fellowships, including the um, Robert Rosberg Foundation, Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, and many others. Um, her visual, literary and visual art has been widely published in journals, magazines, anthologies, and periodicals. Um, Griffins is the author of Miracle Arrhythmia, Willow Books 2010, and The Requi Requited Distance, The Sheep Meadows Press 2011, Griffins' third collection of poetry, Mule and Pear, uh, New Issues Poetry and Prose 2011, was selected with the 2012 Norville Poetry Award for, by the Block Caucus of the American Library Association. Her most recent full oh, one of her full length collections, uh, Lighting the Shadow from 2015, which is a finalist for the 2015 um, Balkans Poetry Prize and the 2016 Phyllis Wheatley Book Award in Poetry. So in 2020, she was selected for the, the Stella Adler Poet in Residence. And she recently had a book, uh, Seeing the Body. So why don't we start the conversation off with that, Seeing the Body. And uh, that was a 2020 book, June 2020. We were just discussing how, um, you know, the pandemic hit and uh, the stay-at-home order hit in March. And the book came out after that. But thankfully, we were able to do some virtual readings. So we'll have this is, count as one of them as, <laughs> as part of the promotion for the book. So it's really great to uh, have you on. And welcome, 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 Rachel. Thank you so much for having me on, Vijay and Bruce. It's very nice to talk about poetry this early in the morning with you two. Thank you for <laughs> yeah. having me. Thank you. Yeah, Thank welcome. You. It's good to see you. So, yeah, so um, we're just about seeing the body. Um, why don't we start off with that? Tell us a little bit about that book and how you melded together multimedia and, and poetry and all this. Uh, and some of the process behind the book. Sure. So the process is very simple and a bit sad. The process of the book coming into being was my mother passed away in um, July of 2014. And um, when anyone experiences this kind of you know loss of a parent, loss of a spouse, loss of a child, anyone that you care about, really, you try to figure out different ways that you can um, tolerate this like pain and grief in you and make sense of the world, which is changed by the loss of that person. And so seeing the body is part of the side effect of grieving the death of my mother. Um, and in some ways, the death of my mother meant the death of a certain sense of self that I had been prior to her her leaving my family by dying. So the book, Seeing the Body, is um, in one breath. It's about celebrating both grief and joy of my mother's life. And in the same breath, it's also about coming through an awareness of changing as a person, as an artist, as, um, as a woman is just you know, I'm not the same anymore because of, of this experience and then trying to chart that experience through language. And in my case, um, which is wild, also images. And so the book, um, at first it was images, uh, no, at first it was language. And then um, 
what occurred to me is that I would introduce finally, I hadn't done this before really, I would finally introduce photographs, self-portraits um, into the book. And, and the reason some of them are in there is because that's where I was literally, um, you know, day, days and hours before my mother died, I was in Mississippi working on um, this kind of body of self-portraits for the first time as a photographer. And so it made sense then that in this grief story, those images would be included in the book. And then there are also images in the book that are um, maybe around like the year or so, year and a half after her death of trying to look at myself visually as a photographer and, um, and, and chart that through photography of like what it looks like to grieve in my body for me. Mm. It's so unusual for a writer to be working with images as well. And um, you said this is the first time you've combined them in a book project, but how did your uh, interest in, in images and photography and video develop alongside that of your writing? Um, and, and parallel tracks until this book, perhaps? Well, for me, Bruce, I always, um, since I was a small child, I always made art and I always wrote stories. And so, um, although I didn't realize until later as I got older that it was kind of a weird thing to do, um, I've always been uh, happiest in the space that connects language and image. Um, I remember growing up reading comic books with my brothers and that for me was like a very explicit way where, you know, you had, you had graphics, you had pictures, and then you also had a story. And so I loved that. Um, as I got older and began to think like, this is what I want to do to, to make a living and this is how I live. Um, it seemed very compartmentalized and separate the space of like, here is a book here is like a museum or paintings or drawings. And these two, you know, even though it makes sense, like language is a visual form, but it's also like, oh, they're separate. And um, when I first began to really teach myself photography, I'm a self-taught photographer. It was very outward um, in a way that my language couldn't really meet it. It was about, you know, photographing uh, making portraits of other people, photographing, um, you know, New York and Brooklyn or wherever I was. And then slowly more and more language and image in an in inner way started to really connect and be inseparable in me. And so mm. um, I don't think previously in any book that I've done um, that I have so explicitly placed the image um near the language in a way and just said like offered the, the reader a space to put those things together for themselves. Um, and I think that's what I'm interested in with seeing the body is that, you know, in our current time with technology, we're doing this every day. You know, you're posting on Instagram, you're making a caption. Um, I mean, the, the universe and galaxy of memes and gifts and things so much involve kind of like a language and an image and, you know, um, the response that can happen instantly in a matter of seconds of recognition of humor or emotions or whatever you have from bringing those two together. So I think even human beings, like we're already pretty much conditioned to do that um, in ways that we didn't. I mean, I grew up, I'm dating myself, I grew up, but uh, it was like AOL modem startup where it made that shh 
sound yeah. was very, very basic. And so to see the evolution already in like my in my in my lifetime of where it is now, it's like I don't even know what it'll look like by the time we come through all the things that we're coming through right now. But um, more and more people are feeling more comfortable with the hybrid format. Um, whereas before I wouldn't have ever dreamt of approaching my publisher or editor and say, well, I'm going to have these pictures here too. And then I'm going to have this and that without them being like, eek, how are we going to make this production, um, quality, but I'm very, very pleased with how seeing the body turned out. They did, Norton did an excellent job with the book and the photo. And what was their response when you told them, oh, there's going to be pictures too, or was that part of the whole plan along the way? They loved it. I mean, I submitted the book to them with the photographs. I mean, they were really, they're, they're really supportive of it. And also, um, I think the actual like spine of the book needs those images, like their internal organs for the body of the book. So mm. um, without them, something is really missing. Um, and with them, the whole book breathes. And so, um, you know, the it wasn't, and I also think more and more publishers are ready and are interested in, in books that do this. And there are a lot of, I mean, it's always happened before, but to have a book where the, the images aren't illustrating the language, it's not like mm -hmm. the literal, like here's the words and here's the picture that goes with yeah. this for you to see it. This is not that, this is more associative or lyrical, or even I think the way sometimes like even like music videos happen or something like you're seeing images, you're hearing lyrics, you're hearing music. Um, I'm a lyric poet and I would say I'm a lyric photographer. And so the images are mapping something that poetry is always trying to ex explore and articulate. So um, I think that's some of the thing that's happening. Ask me tomorrow this time in the morning, this <laughs> yeah. early. I'll tell you something completely different. But this Monday morning, this is what it's about. Well, maybe it'd be helpful for listeners. I mean, the, the images are images uh, largely of you, often in a white dress, against various kinds of landscapes and various kinds of poses. So they are very evocative, and they are, uh, you can imagine them being poems, you know, visual poetry. Um, and not trying to do nail down an illustration or a storyline or something like that. And yeah. so I, I just to echo back that it, that was the effect of, of seeing them to me that uh, how how yeah. integrated they were to the image of to the, yeah. to the book. I think one cool thing that has happened um, you know prior to the book even coming out is that there have been uh, a handful of poets over the years who have seen some of these images um, and written poems, um, you know, coming through that image. Um, mm. I have some friends who, you know, they saw the image and then they're like, oh, I wrote this thing about it. And so I, I think that's also a really interesting space where you can collaborate. I love collaboration with artists, musicians, visual artists, writers, but a way that the image um, was already holding space with another writer or someone else prior to me, like grouping it in the way that I, that I, I mentioned. And I think um, what you're saying about landscape is very, very important in this particular book. Cause you're trying to, for me, it was like staying grounded um, mm -hmm. like in the world and feeling really lost and feeling like, where am I? Like, Oh, I'm in the desert now or, Oh, 
Um, I'm going to stand, I mean, I'm very deliberate in all of these images, nothing just, it's by accident per se, except that um, in some of the images there is, there is this discovery because you don't know with a photograph until you're making it. Mm. And I think it's the same with a poem. You don't know until you really start the writing where you're going to come out, what you're going to see along the way. And um, I think that's a point where like the photographs and the images do meet because um, you have this thing in your mind of this is the photograph I can see. But there's also a whole process when you're making these images by yourself. Um, there's not someone in charge of being behind the camera. You're in front mm. and you're behind it, um, which means it's like 50 times more difficult to be honest yeah. and exhausting and draining and intense. It's interesting that you brought up internet culture as being like a ping point or like a way in which or a way in since, uh, you know, in internet culture, of course, we were like, you know, rehashing or we were pushing off memes that, you know, have been creating the culture and the hive mind, if you will. And it makes us reflect on as a creator of these images, creator of these texts, you're being very mindful about um, the creation. But what is your what is your thoughts on like intercultural in general and how it's evolved and whether or not it's uh, and, and what kind of effect will it have to put into dialogue? Like, do you want to see more? Um, what, would, what would you like to see in internet culture that would would be would kind of guide some of the um, you know uh, ways in which we interact with the internet, ways in which we react with memes, the ways in which we interact with uh, video or selfies and all this kind of thing? It seems like there's such a judge. Sometimes there's such a judgmental uh, you know ring to that that oh we shouldn't be taking selfies, you shouldn't be doing this, or we shouldn't be doing that. But what is your take on that? What is your take on uh, these kinds of things? Well, I mean, I don't like the word should. I always want to push against yeah. when someone tells me I should do something. Yeah. Um, then, I, then I know I'm going to be stubborn and do something else. But I think it's um, too early if, if time can be brought into this to know what this stuff is doing to us deep yeah. down. Um, I mean, in some ways, we know certain ways that... Um, you know, like anything, it's very complicated. In some ways it draws us together and then in other ways it isolates us and can be deafening and people can feel almost lost in this these dunes of like, you know, cyber kingdom. Um, and so I think the, the health, the health issue I think is like knowing when you've had enough, knowing when to tap out, knowing how to balance you know, this tool and like, what is it for? Is it for social connections? Is it for work? Is it for, um, you know, ideas and inspiration? Is it for learning? Um, one of the things we can't um, not mention in our conversation this morning is that you, the three of us are speaking um, within, you know, the huge mantle of a global pandemic. Yeah. And so um, now throw that card onto the deck of cards and it just like annihilates everything. Um, I think there are really rich spaces um, where the internet and what's available for resources online is, is necessary and really important. And then, you know, like human nature, there are some really shitty ways that the internet can help um, amplify those things that are not so kind in people that can be quite vicious, the dragging, the canceling, the things like that. Um, and also just the whiplash of how quickly the turnaround can happen of um, 
popularity or who's in favor, what's in vogue, what's trending and what's not. And um, those kinds of things make me nervous, but I, um, I also think as more and more generations kind of are, are being born and growing up with this, it will, it's going to have to change and metabolize into something else. I just don't know what it is at, at my, at my age. Um, personally, I take frequent breaks. Um, I post selfies, but I'm very, I'm very thoughtful about it. And that's probably be also because I'm a photographer and I'm an artist. And sometimes I'm like, what do I really need to say? Or maybe be quiet or like, who needs to see this, see this right now? Do I need to say this? Does it need to be said by me? You know, like um, there's just different ways that I, I kind of look at this space as material. And um, there are moments when I've been so grateful for it. And then other moments where I'm like, this is trash and it's affecting how I concentrate, read, look at things I can't concentrate or focus because these voices are all kind of like, pulsating through me and I need a break. So, um, you know, I, I'm not going to knock self portraits. I mean, I've used social media in classes. I'm thinking of like workshops I used to teach at Sarah Lawrence where, okay, you're doing selfies, you know, on social media, but like, let's really like look at the architecture of how old that is actually. Like we can go back centuries to look at portraits and self portraits. Um, like let's build it out. Like let's make something from it instead of it being this kind of like thing of antagonism or like why you took four pictures of yourself. Why did you pick the second to last picture? Yeah. What were you doing? Like, how did you frame this? Why did you pick this filter? Why did you make this black and white? Like what choices are you making? Why did you angle your head in this one and not that one? And it's like, it's just things like that. Suddenly that you're looking into this square you know, even just the box of it, like we're all in boxes right now as we're, we're talking on this. And then we're also like frequencies of sound, but just like, like not get like, just pulling back layers and layers and layers of things to think about like the actual miracle of it happening is probably more what I'm interested in. And um, I think, you know, right now too, in addition to the pandemic, we're also going through a civil rights movement and so the utilization and um you know arming of social media in that movement in this movement um which is about black lives and many other things um you know is all something that is kind of churning these gears are turning all at once right now and they're turning so fast you wonder if the engine is going to be able to to keep up with it um and yet it's really necessary. I think, um, I don't know. I don't know if we can imagine a world without this again, but um, I do imagine for myself a world where I disappear for long stretches of time and come back and, and I know what will be there, but maybe there'll be something else. Yeah. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's interesting. I was just thinking, as you said that about the, um, the attempted arrest of the Black Lives Matter activist on Friday, and he used Instagram basically as a kind of armor mm -hmm. to uh, so that whatever happened would would be documented. And we know the importance of that, of course, by now. Um, mm -hmm. Another instance where uh, a, a black man was being talked, the police were trying to ascertain whether he actually owned his car, typical 
incident, but a white woman in the next car, he could see her filming the whole thing on her phone. Mm -hmm. And she sat there until it was, the procedure was over and he knew why she was doing that. And it, it really kind of blew him away. But that is in, there is a reality to this that I think we've been very slow to capture. Mm. Um, and the good side are the sort of things I cited, but the bad side is the, uh, one of the reasons the U.S. has failed so much in its response to the pandemic is the distortion, distortive effect of social media once it does, an issue becomes politicized. Uh, and people are still throwing out disinformation and uh, twisted uh, political takes on mask wearing and things like that, which are very much inhibiting our reaction. So it's such a double-edged sword. Um, and I, I think it, your yeah. response as an artist is really interesting, this idea of I have to, I have to choose when and how to use it very consciously. Yeah. And, uh, Absolutely. I mean, the, the um, you know, when you mentioned the mask, I immediately got so prickly. My family, we lost um, a very, very beloved uncle uh, about two and a half weeks ago from COVID. Mm. Um, young, wonderful uncle who was taking you know, precaution and care with himself and our family. And to think of my uncle passing away alone on a ventilator in a hospital, it just destroys me every time. It, make, it makes me speechless um, when I turn around and on a place like social media, see, you know, people just flaunting and politicizing a, you know, a, a public safety, a public health issue. And so um, it, it's so sad to me and, it, and also enraging that someone else cannot take this seriously unless they lose somebody um, or it hits close to home. It's like, why does it have to hit close to home for you to care when you can see that, I mean, I don't even know this morning what the numbers are. I mean, we're in the millions as far as cases go, but you know, I know it's hundreds of thousands. Now, I mean, the death toll, I mean, these bodies aren't piling up for no reason. And so, um, you know, this is another space too, where all of us are so drained, you know, kind of many of us, some of us, you know, staying at home, not doing things that will endanger ourselves or others. And now even just the fight that we're in of like, are we going to send kids back to school, you know, in weeks, um, teachers, administration, janitors, crossing guards, bus drivers, are we going to do that? And, um, you know, watching this kind of stampede happen on social media of these issues and different things too. I also wonder if we didn't have social media, would we know these numbers? Would we be able to see different things that are happening? I mean, it, how would the news travel um, and the reports and different things? And, you know, at the same time, you know, people didn't vote for Hillary because of emails. So I just, it's just really frustrating yeah. um, when you, when you think about that kind of thing that social media has become this kind of unseen, but also very seen, not only part of the justice system, but just elsewhere as far as, you know, uh, imagine all the black lives that were murdered or people disappeared because there wasn't a camera on because mm. there was no proof. Um, and so, you know, it's just, you know, you can kind of chase the tail of that dog around and around and around and um, and see the good things about it, but also the toxic things. 
Yeah, I mean, it, growing up uh, in the Walter Cronkite generation, it just it keeps Walter Cronkite would have slapped down Donald Trump in about two minutes. There were, the gatekeeping was so strong in those years that uh, the, 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 a story like that could just could never have emerged. You know, a show like Apprentice would never have been on television. Um, the building of that base could never have happened. And um, and yet at the same time, as you say, this was a period of enormous oppression and un, and basically underground or, or, or unseen oppression. So it's the same, the, the analog universe had its same strong pluses and minuses that our current universe has. Uh, uh, in that case, it was the control of the story. Um, yeah. And the whole, you know, massive power of that establishmentarian system that has eroded. Um, thankfully in so many ways and then other ways we have what we have because of it so because of that erosion it's very interesting <laughs> to think about over time so, so as we start to build up to your reading a little bit from your work i just want to ask uh you know we'll, we'll kind of keep this in mind as you read a little bit from your work you know what effect do you hope the reader will have and we'll talk a little bit about how you model this process of introspection this process of mindfulness and you know we'll try to keep that in mind as we listen to the work you know to have the listeners think about you know what effect is it having on me and what, how can i model how can i follow your lead about uh that what we've been discussing about um you know being more mindful being more present being more observant of our process and all this kind of thing how you're modeling that yeah so what, are you asking me about the um, uh, my expectation for readers or yeah. what? Yeah, and sorry. also we'll lead, we'll kind of also for the listeners to think about as we listen to some of your work, but you can preamble a little bit of your expectation of, uh, uh, you know, what you hope the reader will get out of it. And then you can read a little bit from your work and then we'll talk a little bit about as listeners, you know, our process and all that. And we'll talk a little bit about, so I'll have you set up basically, you know, what your expectation readers are and then read a little bit from your work and then we can have the conversation flow from there. Yeah. So thanks Vijay. So I, you know, this book has come out um, in a pandemic and, um, you know, last year, months ago, pre-pandemic, um, I had worried that a book about a mother dying and a daughter's grief um, who would want to read that sitting on the beach in June 2020? Who would want to, you know, give their summer days and vacations to a book that has such intensity and such sadness in it? Um, and I thought, wow, I've got this June day, and oh, you know, this is not the <laughs> not the the backdrop. And yet, um, the universe being what it is, uh, I have been stunned by the response that I've received, stunned and very grateful um, that whatever happened um, before has now been, I guess what I would say is, you know, what's happened is that people are dealing with so many feelings, whether they're literally losing loved ones, but also the loss of a certain ordinary kind of way of going about freely in your body, being able to move through space, being able to get on the train or 
go meet your friends or, you know, even go for a run or something like there's a grief of even just the world is not going to be what it was when we come through this. Um, and again, as, as Bruce was saying, you know, about something else for better or for worse, right? Like the normal, like we can't normalize, um, I think the constant anxiety, I know I have it, constant anxiety and dread and, and weariness and exhaustion that is so draining. But at the same time, we also have to look at the fact that the world, we've like so many cracks and things, so many wounds have come to the surface and plain sight. There's so much healing that needs to be done. And there are a lot of conversations that really need to happen with people being accountable and responsible for that. And so I think some of my um, books hope or my hope for my book is that it's offering a space where um, people can on their own terms think about grief, but also transformation and coming through and celebrating, um, celebrating uh, kind of the joy of going on and living and letting that, you know, add to your armor of who you're becoming, um, having those memories, having that love, um, having the care of others and caring for others feels really important. And also just to give your attention in a time where it's so hard for us to give our attention to something for more than a few minutes, if that, you know, to really stop and think about our lives. And so um, I have to say each week, um, I probably receive a letter or two from someone. Sometimes I know the person more and more I don't they write to me and they thank me for seeing the body. They've gotten it somehow and um, they've read it to their mother, their grandmother, they've read it to aunts, they've given it as a gift to someone else. And um, they tell me stories about their mother or they, they share a line from the book. And so it's starting, the book is just starting to feel like it's not even almost about me anymore. Like it was mine when I was writing it. But now it's a bit bigger than me as far as what it is holding space for, um, which is a very private and intimate thing that the grief and also um, in a way too, it's like a public grief. Like even right now, um, when I think about these last few weeks, I, I lost my uncle. We lost John Lewis. There's been so many great people who are passing away. You know, we just celebrated the year anniversary of Toni Morrison dying. Um, it's just so many powerful things happening. And so the book brings together the private, but also the public. Yesterday, I believe, was the anniversary of Mike, Mike Brown being killed. And that happened seven days after my mother died. And so when I was grieving the death of my mother, suddenly there was also not suddenly but as it is in this country there was now this kind of awful disrespect disrespect of human life of black life of black dignity that also suddenly came into play um and so i guess in some ways the book it allows you to grieve privately but it also holds space for a kind of public grief as well and so um I, once I write a book, I try to let go of it and not try to control what I want readers to feel. I feel like the privacy of me needing to write the book is one space. And then when I come to the other side of the wall and like pass it through, then I've had to, I just have to do my work so that my intention or hope 
for that work and how I felt when I made it and what it's about can translate to someone else and be a, a space to connect. And I think that's what's happening with seeing the body. Um, and I just feel, um, I feel like I'm holding space for so many stories of others um, as much as I'm holding space for my mother's life. I think this is exactly the work she would want me to do and live. And so um, I get to feel close to her again right now in a way that um, feels particularly raw. And, um, and so I, I think maybe that's what I can say about seeing the body is that I've been overwhelmed. I've had people writing me from different different countries about the book, reading the poems, sharing the poems. And I think that's what one of the things that poetry can do, that it can travel in that way um, and that intimacy in a way that is very different um, than other mediums. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't we get a chance to listen a little bit from Seeing the Body. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get, give you a chance to read a few poems from there. And mm -hmm. then uh, I'll thank you. So I'll start with a poem that's actually called Comedy. Um, this poem first appeared um, in The New Yorker. Comedy. I am here before the nurse brings my mother breakfast. I study her body, try to remember if I caught my mother in the dream I had the night before, where the hem of her gown flew through a silver tunnel without end. Her skin went right through my hands whenever I was close enough to save her. She slipped through her name, her name I could not stop calling until I sat up alone in my crib. Embarrassed, my mother tells me she remembers how she phoned me last night to let me know she was in the morgue. She laughs as the nurse whose feet squeak and Minnie Mouse Crocs arrives with tea. We watch the nurse with eyes that will never remember her face. Thank her for the toast that is thicker than my mother's hand. That morphine is some powerful shit, my mother says. I agree with her, as though she has merely mentioned it is cold outside, though I have rarely had morphine and have never made courtesy calls from a morgue. It was late, and I didn't know where I was, she says, because that wasn't death, which means I couldn't have called you from that place. This is my new mother who has finally admitted fear into the raw ward of her heart. This is my mother who flew away from my grasp in the tunnel without end. The woman who could not wait for me to grab the white edge of where she was going. I was afraid, she says, looking over the rim of her plastic cup. She shakes the world, chipped ice between us. Yeah, don't go and write about me like that, she says. I already know you will. So shall I 
read another one or yeah, should I'd I? I'd like to read one more. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Um... That was really beautiful. It so captures the feeling of being in that situation, which I've been a few times. And uh, it's yeah. very, I really, really connected with that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So much. I thought I would read it. I think the space um, that I'm very grateful for and just feel so essential is the work that doctors, nurses, um, the hospitals are are so stressed out and, and and drained and overwhelmed right now. And yet we're also seeing that there's so many chasms and failures and blockings and things that are happening in our healthcare system in this country that as I went um, through the process of um, my mother being hospital hospitalized many times in her life actually uh, I saw that at eye level since I was probably 11 or 12 years old and so um, I think you know some kind of lid has been pulled back right now where we're all seeing these spaces and just seeing the heroic miracles that these people are doing every day, what they're risking. And so that's why I wanted to read that poem. I'll read a different poem. It's called Good Mother. And I'm going to um, read it too for the Brooklyn energy. And also, um, I'm really happy to say that next month um, and the Best American 2020, this poem is included. So it's my first Best American poem. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very, very excited. This poem is called Good Mother. Praise the woman who took me in her arms and wouldn't let go of me. We sank to the floor in the middle of the aisle in right aid. It was a late morning and I walked slowly, furious that spring could still be so wonderful. Magnolia tempted me to forget about my mother for a few minutes. I stared at a Brooklyn blue sky through branches clasping pear blossoms. The limbs shook in sunlight. My eyes adjusted when I went into the pharmacy and realized everywhere I looked, the world announced it would soon be Mother's Day. Something ripped itself out of me, a howl so wide I thought I would burst. The woman near the counter understood right away the way my mother once understood I had been born in a specific sadness. The woman did not say she was a mother, but I knew it. She put her arms around me and waved away the cashiers, the security guard who repeated, ma'am, ma'am. A stranger rocked me in her arms, so much kindness as we fell over and crashed against a row of votive candles. She didn't say it would be okay. She didn't ask me what was wrong but her arms put me in a vicious prayer. I almost bit her, almost pushed her away. We held on. We held on and praised the nameless thing that makes us what we think we aren't strong enough to know. She knew. She didn't let go of me. Praise the woman who didn't wipe my snot from her shirt, my tears from her collarbone, who did not tell me to pull myself together while everything inside me dropped. 
crushed bones, blossoms pushing through my mouth, a word, mom, 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 this broken bird song of mine with no bird, no wing, no way to fly back through time. Praise the woman who did not leave me like something suddenly dead on the sidewalk with a breeze blowing over its face. Praise the woman who smelled like fabric softener and coffee and the good things I must believe I am too. Praise the mothers who walk slowly through the world, bringing children into themselves, burying children sometimes before themselves, and who defend something harder than innocence. Praise the guts and grace of mothers. Praise their exhaustion and their good work. Praise their wit, their wonderful ways of listening to the world fall asleep against its clean pillow. For the woman who knelt with me in an ugly heap in the middle of right aid on an unbearable spring day, who helped me buy a Mother's Day card for my dead mother, who knew better than to say I'd be just fine. For you, I lift my arms each spring and wish you a kindness so fantastic, I sometimes feel I'm in midair, the shadow of my wings clapping in joy above your children who must love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was wow, so beautiful. Wow. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And I really appreciate how you start out with that personal relationship with the mother and then you go into the invocation of all mothers. And uh, that was really that was really uh, powerful, I think, technique to use. Yeah. Thank you. And it allows the reader to then connect with you know all mothers and, and the, the role of mother in in their lives. Yeah. Thank you. And then I also thought of your photograph of uh, standing under a streetlight with your hands out, like, like with wings, you know, kind of uh, that bird image that is so powerful in that poem that, and how the image would come together. I just want to repeat for the audience, we're talking to uh, Rachel Liza Griffith and, um, you, and definitely check out the, her, her new book, which is out now. And uh, what's your website or how can people track you more? Uh, follow up on your work, Rachel, Eliza. Sure. So my website is www.rachelelizagriffiths.com. And I'm around by the same name on my Instagram. And on Twitter, I am Rachel Eliza underline G, I think. I, think. <laughs> I just started Twitter. I really don't know. I think yeah. I've had it months but i think it's rachel eliza underscore g and so those are the ways that you can um, you can find me okay good so this and is the truth to power show i just want to remind people this is the truth to power show i'm ready for brooklyn uh so uh yeah and we air every monday at 8 a.m today we're talking to rachel eliza griffiths so go ahead bruce you had something well, I just thought we'd talk a little bit about pop, um, which is another yeah. aspect of your work that, that people can easily, easily access, and it's so important. And uh, so if you could tell us about what it is and how it came together and uh, a little bit about it, that would be terrific. Sure. Thank you for asking me about it, Bruce. So 
pop, P-O-P, it feels like another lifetime ago at this point, um, but it is a project that remains very near and dear to me. Um, just because I was very hard-headed and stubborn about wanting to make it and see it. Um, I often think of this wonderful um, Toni Morrison quote that I'm kind of butchering where she's talking about books where she says, you know, you know, um, if there's a book yet that you haven't, you know, read that you want, like write the book, like, you know, make the book that you want to read, write it yourself if you want to read it. And so for me, um, during the time that I thought about POP, um, about pop, I was coming across all of this kind of really like janky footage and videos of poets who I love, like doing these readings and the sound would be terrible and it would just be like a mess. I mean, now we're all virtual and we're on Zoom and we're all these things and it's like how to do proper video and things like that. But this was ages ago now. And so um, I also thought, you know, one of the tricky things about photography is the kind of, I don't know, two dimensional aspect of it. Or when you're thinking about portraits, like I was interested in, I photograph portrait, I photograph poets and make portraits of poets. And yet one of the primary portraits of poets is their actual poetry and their work and their language. Like that's the interior that, that we get to see in poets. And how can I bring that to my practice as a photographer who focuses on photographing poets. Um, and so I started to think, well, what if I did a series where they talked and spoke and shared ideas? Um, and so I kind of came up with a format and then I decided I would video them in a similar gesture to how I make portraits. And so um, this whole project, I mean, I had no money, I had no funding. I had a studio in Dumbo that was down the hall from a CrossFit gym where people were running through the hallway, you know, panting and jogging and rolling tires and chains and things. And still I persisted and um, was very fortunate that I would just ask poets if they were in New York and if they were willing to come, would they want to participate? And I just sent out just a widespread, who wants to do this, you know? Um, and I was just really overwhelmed by, you know, the amount of poets who said yes and allowed me to see them and listen to them. When I photograph poets or any writers, I always read their work before I come toward them with a camera. That just seems like a respect thing, but it, I know it will also help me get an energy for how to photograph them. And so with pop, it was share a poem by a poet you love and respect um, or you admire, say something about that poet's work, and then the bridge then to your work and read a poem about you. And then at the end, they say like pop, you know, like something to kind of unify the series. But I completed, I want to say, just over 100 videos. Um, it was something I don't, you know, it was really great. It was one of the hardest things I've done, I think, creatively, because it was really about learning video, um, learning how to edit videos. I had to learn like Final Cut and all these different interfaces and things, color correcting black and white, sound. And so it was like a whole thing that I challenged myself to do for better or for worse. Um, and I, I, I do think that um, it was worth it. Like even sometimes when the sound isn't great or the video isn't great, it was worth it because I was trying. And I think my care and admiration and um, 
and just like cheering on poets and wanting them to share their work and letting people see them in this. It feels very intimate, which was something I wanted the, the videos to feel very intimate, like they're talking to you. And also a, a beautiful thing that happened is that I, I received letters from teachers who were incorporating these videos into their curriculums of, you know, teaching like the poetry of Terence Hayes, who he reads in his video, um, a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. So then it was like, they could do actually a lesson of like, Terrence Hayes and Gwendolyn Brooks, and here's a video. And this is, and then people are like, well, what do poets look like? And what do they do? They're so weird. But these videos, I think, show just how different and distinct and gorgeous poets are, and just um, the intensity and the attention to language and imagination and attention to just ordinary life too, love, sex, humor, politics, like everything, the earth music, it's like all there. And so um, I felt very fortunate too in the Academy of American Poets said that like we'll be like a home for this work so that more people can see it and access it. And um, again, it becomes a project where it's, you know, I might've thought about it, someone else would have done it eventually and people, I mean, now we're all doing it, but it also feels again, like bigger than me. And I almost, when I look at it, think, well, I've traveled so far away from that space it's like oh wow you really love that and you did that and you tried your best girl and it's okay but um i'm very sometimes i will watch the videos and just this whole tearful thing comes over me because it just it i was so consumed and obsessed with trying to share this village of contemporary poets with others um in a way that felt different and distinct from other spaces. So that's what I can say uh, about pop for now. Yeah, and it stands for Poets on Poetry, pop. And it's, uh, I really encourage people to check it out because uh, the, the videos are fairly brief. They're minutes long and variable lengths. And uh, the poets come across in ways that um, they're obviously the the connection you felt with them is very evident in the in their work and how they uh, how they emote basically it, it's it's a wonderful way to get to know a poet through pop if you like their work and have never heard them because you're right if you try to go find somebody's reading on YouTube it is so uh, <laughs> frustrating but yeah. Um, and then do you have news you want to share today about a, a novel? Is there something in the air that, uh, there's a novel in the air. There's a novel <laughs> in the air. Thank you for asking me. Um, that's what I can say about it is that there's a novel in the air and I, I need to go finish it, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm really thrilled and, um, this just feels, I have to say to you, like, I just, I always wanted to write fiction and prose as much as I wanted to write poems, but like I did my MFA in fiction when I was younger, I would write these little novels on my like Smith Corona typewriter. And I would, I would, I would mass like pages and they were awful. They were absolutely terrible. I don't know where they are. I hope no one ever sees these, but I, I, that gesture of wanting to do that and getting involved with characters and stories and being carried away. I'm so, happy um, and pleased now that this will happen in a grown-up form um, pretty soon. And today feels like a magical day to share that news with, with my friends and, and people who are asking me, what, what are you up to next? And it's such a different space 
from the last book I wrote, which was so hard, which took so much from me seeing the body that to kind of fly toward this new, um, well, not even new, but the space that is so familiar in me, but to offer it in this other open way feels like really, really special, particularly this morning. So thank you for asking me about it. Thank you. If you don't see me for another 10 years, you know where I am. <laughs> and can you say the title? It's called Promise. Uh, and do, does it have a coming out date yet, or is that still to be determined? I, it's, well, I'm going to, we'll see. I don't know. It's a lot of things are up in the air with it, but yeah. it, it will be out. Yeah. Yeah, so look for Promise by Rachel Isaac Griffiths coming out uh, to a bookstore uh, in your laptop near you. In the future <laughs> universe. <laughs> well, congratulations and good luck. It's um, How are you finding, I know that you do a lot of work in residencies, and, and one of the things I want to ask you about, you're, uh, you're the poet in residence at Stella Adler, and I have a theater background. What is that? And uh, what's that, what mishmash is that about? It's so fantastic. I love the Stella Adler community. They're so wonderful. Um, they have a poet in residence as part of their um, kind of training and their, they have this kind of beautiful thread of attention to like poetry, language, words, and how, um, you know, poems get breathed, like how you breathe through poems and the language and, and all of the energy and attention um, that is in poets that that in some way can, can happen. And I think this is an organic thing in the space of theater and acting and, and whatnot. And so um, I was really happy to be selected for um, this year's Poet in Residence. And at the same time, the frustration that there's a pandemic, right? And so again, um, my heart goes out to Broadway, to all the theater people, the actors, uh, dancers, uh, production teams and things who it's all in person. That's the alchemy. That's the magic. That's the thing that happens when you go to see a play. Um, that's the thing when you're sitting in the dark in a black box theater and now, you know, trying to watch opera on a screen is just not it. You know, it's hard. Um, and so I'm really thinking of that. Um, so far, I've done a reading, a virtual reading with members of the Stella Adler community. I'll be working with students. We're going to do some roundtables about talking about like craft and language and um, different aspects and themes of like of of how you know poems happen, but also like their delivery and like not performance per se, but in some way, you know, the reading of. Um, and so one of the, the most important things I think in my ignorant way about like acting is like, you know, the reading of the line. I know that is something that I share with actors or, or um, theater people or singers even of, you know, uh, how a poet can come through a poem and the reading of it means so much to how someone else can receive it and experience it or be like, oh, I didn't anticipate the word, she would read it that way or they would read it that way or that they would breathe at that moment or what this line break means and how it changes the tone or meaning or nuance of this line. Um, so there's always like Shakespeare, but also these new new voices too and contemporary voices that are so intriguing to me. And so, you know, I think our challenge um, is to figure out how to have community virtually. Um, but everyone at Stella Adler has been so positive and like excited and 
and happy that we're, you know, in conversations to do things. So I don't know, it's a big question mark of what exactly we'll be doing given what the world looks like, but I know it will be pretty amazing because everyone there is, is pretty amazing. Well, one thing I know is that a lot of acting schools are encouraging actors to create performance reels mm -hmm. to make their own pop, if you will. And so um, your experience with that and how you pulled performances from poets in those videos, I think, would have a direct transfer to helping actors mm -hmm. shape something that's, that's personal but familiar for their these uh, reels that they're using to get work. A lot of them are turning toward more um, so I would say voiceover style work. If they can't work on stage, can they work in other media? Mm -hmm. And these reels help them secure those kinds of spots. So yeah, I completely uh, I agree. You could, you could yeah. be a really, really key to helping actors bridge this horrible time for performing arts. It's so horrible. It's, I completely agree with you. It's so horrible. And I almost feel too like poets are building reels at this point because we're, we're all suddenly doing these video readings where it's it's like mm. thinking about your lighting or like, what are you going to put on some mascara or just different things or... <laughs> Do you have a mic or you know different things? I mean, here's a, a moment where as a photographer, I'm really helping my poet self out who would pretty much prefer not to be on videos at all. But the photographer is like, okay, you have lighting, you have a backdrop, you kind of know some stuff about audio. And it directly I know comes from 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 pop, but also even if um if people check out my website, I make these kind of lyric videos that are usually small, brief kind of associative videos. And a lot of it I do myself, like I, the editing, the color, the like the whole mood of it, the storyboard layout of it. Um, it's just so fascinating to me. I mean, one day I hope to direct some kind of film of my own or maybe even act in things. We'll see. Right now the poet is like screaming, like, what do you mean act in things? <laughs> But, you know, I'm I'm just interested, I think, as an artist of experimentation, just yeah. play, just try it like, oh, you fail. Well, you failed. Like, do the next thing. And so, um, you know, it's like all practice, just like just work on it and check it out. And and you'll come away with something. You'll come away with some new muscle you didn't know you had. Um, and it may hurt a lot, but it also may make you stronger. Um also, thank you so much. As we start to wind down the last few minutes, I just want to announce that this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, you know, that we've been affected by COVID as well. A lot of revenue streams have gone offline because of COVID. So um, if you can uh, donate a little bit to Radio Free Brooklyn's cause to help us stay in the air, it'd be very helpful. You can go donate radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. You'll find some great t-shirts and mugs and other swag. They would like to send you as a thank you. You can also donate using your phone to RFB Give 5 um, to 44321. It only takes a moment and you'll be able to use your digital wallet. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to Amazon.com smile and register ready for a nonprofit you wish to support. When you do a percentage of your sales, will go to RFB and it'll cost you nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whatever you can afford will help us stay on the air. Um, if you're listening on your computer, you can free yourself up by listening to the app on uh, your mobile phone in the respective Play Stores. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much you. for being here. Thank you. All Thanks. right, guys. So every Monday at 8 a.m. Thank you. Thank you so much.